part of my aesthetic is fragility. I've always been a very fragile person in certain respects, you know, because I'm small and little. Life is fragile. Um, fragility is all around. People all have a fragility. Easy to hurt someone. You're meant to really be looked at and thought about and then, you know, put together and how the story that you get from them. Hi, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Thomas Edwards, Executive Assistant here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been building the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These more than 2,500 long-form interviews give witness to history as it unfolded through the voices of the figures who shaped and reimagined it. This episode is the fourth in a series of six, each curated by a contemporary artist in response to and in conversation with past speakers from the Archives' oral history program. Our guest is Dion Lee, an artist based in Columbus, Ohio, who uses video, collage, and documentary to explore the relation between our bodies and the landscape. In this episode, Lee dives into the 2015 oral history of Michelle Stewart and the 1995 oral history of Jerome Kaya. Stewart was interviewed by Annette Letty, and her work confronts vulnerability of and to the world. Kaya was interviewed by Paul Karlstrom and he was a San Francisco-based artist whose work celebrates the brittle and brilliant resilience of human life. Listen to history through Dion Lee's headphones. My name is Dion Lee, and I'm an artist working in photography, collage, and video to explore power, survival, and personal history in relation to the American landscape. I lived in the Bay Area for a little over six years, though I'm now based in the landlocked Midwest. I saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time when I moved to California. Having grown up in New York City, I wasn't unfamiliar to the vastness and overwhelm of an ocean. However, I had never stood above the ocean. I'd only seen it from sea level, where this unfathomable amount of space, both in horizontal and vertical depth, becomes a flattened plain that stops with the hard edge of a horizon. In Northern California, you first see the ocean from above, from the edge of rough cliffs and softer but just as unsettling bluffs. You get to see the surface of the ocean, where its ripples and waves have larger context. This change in eye contact, peering from above, allows me to feel less like the ocean will swallow me, but more like maybe I can decide to jump in instead. This, of course, would be fatal, but the invitation pulls like a magnet. Instead, you find a trail that winds you down the cliff, and then you can choose to stand face to face with the ocean. So it's called Ring of Fire. Yes, which is the Pacific. The Pacific with the earthquake and the... I'm aware of Ring of Fire as a concept, but... So it's a story of the Pacific? You don't read it that way. You I, just, just I know, move you just around in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, I know, yeah. I don't read it. Yeah. 
No, I mean, one might think there was a tendency to, to No, you do realize that. That, that you don't... Well, I, do, I have to say, here's what I tend to do. I tend to, to look at it... I get an all-over impression, then I try to break it down, or I look at it that way, or I look at it this way, and then I give up. I mean, I always try all these different strategies for reading Well, that's it. good. I'm glad you tried. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's excellent. That's better than people just walking by. <laughs> you know, because they're meant to really be looked at and thought about and then, you know, put together and how the story that you get from them. But the intensity of this. See, these were letters that my parents wrote to one another. Oh, I see. You know, when they were separated. So it's like, a, it's really like a history, but breaking out of narrative, linear narrative. And working like, in a sense, associatively. You're working associatively and historically and personally all at the same time. Actually, you put it better than I would have. I mean, that's, that's well put. And there yeah. are also then these kind of geological forms that repeat, but they mean different things. You know, it's like kind of connections in nature that are unknowable or unreadable. They're all kind of about, to me, all your work is about how you can't read. In other words, they, I, I continually come up against this feeling. You can't read, or there's no point in reading, or writing is meaningless, or narrative. There's, there's only this one other, this other narrative that you're giving us, right? And that's, Absolutely. that's what it's about. Yeah. Okay. Maybe you should write about my work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in Michelle Stewart because of her interest in what's unreadable. Most of the world, especially the natural world, feels impenetrable as a contemporary person. Of course, this is rooted in our intellectual and emotional distancing from believing that we, too, are also part of the natural world. Alicia Longwell, chief curator at the Parish Museum, calls Stewart's Ring of Fire the artist's, quote, own creation myth. Ring of Fire includes a grid of photographs made along the South Pacific Basin. They include images of the night sky filled with stars, people, large rocks sitting still on a beach, plants, and a photograph of letters sent between her parents. In front stands a table that performs as an altar, with stones, tonga tapa cloth, seeds, a woven leather basket, and a vintage wood container. The title of the piece seems to be in opposition with what the viewer actually sees. The Ring of Fire, geologically speaking, is a network of volcanic eruptions. Not quite a ring, but instead it takes the shape of a crooked horseshoe, sitting beneath the rim of the Pacific Ocean. Looking at the image collection in Stewart's Ring of Fire, it is hard to see the destructive forces that live below where these images were made. It's the difference, perhaps, in viewing a space from sea level or cliff height. I've always been a frail man, you know, I've always been thin and delicate and weak, so I've always had a sense that life is fragile. And I think that is especially clear in my work. The sickness now, whether it's AIDS or anything, whatever it is, 
I happen to have AIDS. All illnesses have the same kind of demoralizing and crippling thing. You know, like now I have a, I, I don't know if I'm so much dying from AIDS as I'm dying from the medicines they're giving me to keep something alive. I don't know. It's odd. I think like the, I have CMV retinitis, so I'm going blind. And the treatment for that is farce carnet. Now the farce carnet has given me pancreatitis and I have wasting syndrome and wasting syndrome means that I need to eat as much as I can and the treatment for pancreatitis is to not to eat at all. So the problem, I don't have a problem with losing sight. I don't have, that kind of thing doesn't traumatize me. Problem I have is with the physical discomfort and pain that when it's constant. Now, if I was in pain once in a while, I can handle that. But when you're in pain all the time, you become very irritable, and that's what I don't like. Sure, the I think that the going blind, I can still paint because I still can create what I want to see. And I'm not sure, but I think it's interesting, and I want would think it'd be interesting to look through drawings I've done from when I was in good health to when I my eyesight has gone to see how that change is. Now I've gotten done that with some of my friends, but they haven't noticed any change. <laughs> so I don't know how to work that theory out because it's not doesn't seem to be working. But I figured that I probably don't have a problem because I'm creating. And of course I'm going to create by what I can see, and so my work will lend itself to being seen, whereas opposed to taking something that's already created and trying to see that, like if I'm looking at a photograph or a writing or something, when you're looking at that, it's you don't have that control, and so you have to conform, and if you can't see it clearly, well, then it's not so easy to conform. I know I'm adjusting, I'm learning how to live without sight. So there's certain things that people take for granted, or that I used to take for granted, that I can no longer do. Like, I have to look at the steps when I go down the steps. Mm -hmm. I have to do things like rely on my memory. Because I can see the shape of a person. Okay, I know that's a person. I don't need to see the detail. Jerome Chaya was born in Cleveland, Ohio just a couple of hours from where I now reside in Columbus. Chaya worked in painting, mixed media, sculpture, and performance within the queer scene of 1980s San Francisco, where he moved to pursue his MFA at the San Francisco Art Institute. The scholar Rudy Blythe describes Chaya's performances as, quote, post-apocalyptic deconstructive drag. Any performative work relies on the body. Chaya described his body as always being, quote, thin and weak. And this becomes truer for him through his diagnosis of HIV and later passing away from complications related to AIDS. Chaya's sculpture, Earthquake Detector, presents the body as a site for prediction, a bravery to scan the future for potential destruction. Outside of the Smithsonian archives, it is very difficult to find information on this specific sculpture. In fact, the physical description reads, One photographic print, black and white, 25 by 20 centimeters. It does not list clay as a material, which I assume the sculpture to be ceramic. It does not include the height of the actual form, 
though from the black and white tile floor it rests on, I can believe it is relatively the height of an average adult. If I had to apply a fantasized material description of the piece, I would say, it is a tall, cylinder, armless figure, sculpted of clay with ridges that resemble columns in relief, almost as if the figure itself is an uncovered ancient tower, hollow at the base but still standing and enduring. There are windows cut into the torso and a crack at the shoulder, perhaps from one of its detections. The head leans forward, slightly in front of the body, leaning towards the future. There are windows for eyes and a zigzagged hole for its teeth and mouth. A crown of pinched clay at its head. It's one of the most extraordinary... Uh, I had someone come and photograph the entire oh good, house. Good. Are they going to come with... Uh, will copies come with your papers? I yes. That's, that's why I had them do okay. it. <laughs> but it's really one of the most extraordinary settings with your work and then... Uh, Sometimes it's actually difficult to tell <laughs> what are things that you just intrigue you or delight you and that you then set around and which things are the works. But you're sitting in here um, on, on a sofa, and earlier at any rate, you had your feet up and you reminded me very much of sort of Odalisque. Yes. Which I that suppose is my you, wouldn't mind, position. you wouldn't mind that. <laughs> and we're sitting doing this tape, and I'm about, oh, probably about six, five, six feet or so, six, eight feet from Oh, you're me. not that far. Okay, five. five five feet, man. At the most. If I lean back, it's six. But uh, would you recognize me from this distance? It's hard to say it? because I already know your voice. Well, well, the voice is a giveaway. Yes, the voice is a giveaway. And even though I can't really see the detail, if I have the slightest clue, I will probably guess. That doesn't mean I can see it, though. It just means I'm taking the other factors and allowing them to dictate to me. Sounds to me is that what you said earlier, that um, memory is playing more and more yes, a, a that, role I must say I in how you see. <laughs> and I think that that's a very interesting uh, observation because uh, that is quite different than just responding optically yes. to a surface, to shapes and forms, yes. and that if it's filtered through memory, one would expect that it would open up perhaps, uh, open different doors, let's say, into perception. And it's for you to say, not for me, but this is what struck me as, as po very much possibility in what sounds like uh, in some respects, a new relationship to your work through this process. It's a side product of, of uh, a symptom of, of a disease. Yes. Which, if you want to get philosophical about it in some respects, you could say then this is a positive Oh, yes. Result. I believe from any situation you can derive positive things. I don't think that some, even though some things you can derive positive things from, are necessarily worthwhile to go through. Yeah. You know, you can be beat and raped, and from that you can get a lot of positive things. But I think you can get those positive things in a little less traumatic of a way. Well, maybe right. not. Maybe only through trauma can you get certain sensitivities and certain, you know, things. Well, if, if seeing the details of uh, your own work or of a work of art 
becoming more difficult, that they, there isn't the same kind of right. clarity. I have to look at other things within that work. Well, yeah, and so I'm wondering if one of them isn't then uh, the, um, the content or the subject, the, uh, say, the symbolism, what these things represent, not exactly the way they're realized or drawn in or painted. And you work, uh, I should mention that you generally work very small. Yes. <laughs> uh, this should be known because if we're talking about vision. Uh, one would think that it would be absolutely requisite because you sometimes work tiny, yes, tiny little things. Yes, But um, given a decreased power in um, clearly seeing that or being able perhaps to work quite as uh, minutely as you did before, does your attention or concern turn more to the quotes meaning of these works? Because you're No, because when I work, I have a working behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's even less intellectual or thought of. It's more habitual. It's something that I just do. I just go into it and I just do it. And usually I'm telling a story and playing and chatting with myself. Because that's really what my painting is. It's me talking to myself. Really? Telling jokes or making a statement or, you know, losing my temper or whatever. But usually that's what I'm doing when I'm painting. I'm talking to myself. I'm having a private conversation. <laughs> so these works really are uh, a rather direct expression of oh, state yes. of mind, your temper, your, your concern, your interests, uh, maybe even being interrupted and having your uh, thinking shifted a different way, and then sure. that would show up in the... Uh, well, the thing with working on the small things that is beneficial is that if my, my emotional state changes, I can easily work on something else. I'm not wed to a piece. I don't have to finish it before I start something new. So if I lose interest in it, I can simply put it aside and pick something else up. So yeah, usually I start, at least lately, because lately I've been working in this room mm -hmm. here. Now I have a painting room when I'm feeling well enough, I work in there. I have a much bigger range of color and paint in there. Here I'm limited. I have black, white, and a few colored things. It feels safe to say that when Chaya speaks of his commitment to his own vulnerability, that he is talking about both his work and his body. This recording occurred just a few months before his death in November of 1995. He acknowledges fragility as a complicated state of being, it both a sign of strength and holding its own sense of danger. This makes sense when considering that culturally, we align fragility with a sense of weakness, a deficiency that leaves us open to the threat of vulnerability and requires our own willingness to break or be broken. The memory shared between Chaya and his friend Ander van der Mulen highlights this dichotomy of vulnerability being both a gift, which can be taken literally in the sense of Chaya's sharp vessel, but also as a dare, asking, can you learn how to maneuver around its jagged edge? The willingness to break or be broken feels like an apt takeaway from Chaya's earthquake detector and Stewart's ring of fire. These works together bring into focus the potential of breakage as a pathway to vulnerability and how to reckon with our own states of fragility. As Chaya states, it is easy to hurt someone, and therefore, perhaps, it is harder to put ourselves on the fault line. Part of my aesthetic is fragility. 
I've always been a very fragile person in certain respects, you know, because I'm small and little. So fragility is a part of my personality. And I'm fascinated by fragility. I think it's a beautiful thing. And also by fragile things that can that can actually hurt you. He used to have he made sets of sadomasochistic dinnerware that was really fragile, really sharp, really thin. And it would you know, you I had a coffee cup that you could cut your lips off. With. Oh man, did you break out of it? I used it for years, yeah. I mean I knew where to put my mouth. How do you describe this? This is really Jerome, I don't know about this. What are you trying to do? Do your friend in? <laughs> giving her such a... Well, you know, it's that dichotomy. Yeah. Something frail and frail, but... That can really hurt kill you. you. Well, now tell me, describe this cup. Okay, it, um, I, I still have it at home. I, it's, like I said, it's very thin. It just had a pattern pressed into it. Some abstract I made pattern. whole dinner sets. Yeah. Um, and then the edge, the lip, was just um, the clay basically bent outward and torn. So it would just have these jagged edges. And then after he went to graduate school, um, I would see slides of his work and the ceramics became, they stayed thin for the most part, although some of the things I've seen here that I hadn't seen before aren't that thin, but they got thinner and they just turned into flat walls, like relief images, right? Yeah. And they looked more and more like drawings, and you, you started coloring them more and more like you were doing your drawings. Yes. And eventually you weren't doing the ceramics at all, and then you started doing the drawings, and the drawings started getting thicker with the nail polish. Yeah. Well, that's some of the, the some of the aspect of look like some of your ceramics. Yeah. You know, like if you didn't couldn't touch them or have them three-dimensionally in front of you, you might have a hard time, or you could see a great similarity. Now, do you agree with Anna's uh, report there? Yes, yes. Of course, I don't think the paintings are so fragile, but some of them are. There's, it was a whole time, there's, you know, I love to play and make experiments, and I took paint remover and put it on a couple paintings and then let it dry, then paint on top of that. So I have some things that, you know, if you, you, every time you touch it, it'll just fall apart. But a lot of that, too, is that it's like, you know, life is very fragile. People are very, in a sense, fragile. Well, this is what I was going to ask, if there was an emotional dimension to this, or even psychological as well as the obvious Both. sexual. Both. Life is fragile. Um, fragility is all around. People ha all have a fragility. It's easy to hurt someone. Is this, though, your own experience speaking, or do you really, have you found, in general, and many other people, these, the same kind of fr fragility? I think because I feel fragile myself, that um, in my work, it just is a natural thing to come out. Chaya's earthquake detector and Stewart's ring of fire addresses what cannot be seen, but always felt. 
As someone who works in photography, particularly around land, the environment, and our body's relationships to it, I'm always struggling with the picture's ability to represent the wholeness of an experience of a place. We seem to think it should be enough to replicate exactly what you see, but the photograph often fails at replicating what one might have felt, and that is because the felt is rarely visible. It is inside the body, the human body, ocean body, earth body, and yet still, a black-and-white photograph of Jerome Chiat's earthquake detector gives me the feeling of endurance through fragility and a determination to lean towards the future despite the risk of toppling over. But you must be chasing the future in order to detect it, even if it means chasing an earthquake, even if it means your body becomes the earthquake. I really do love fragility. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Do you uh, identify that with fragility? You, we started this yes, interview and you I said do. that you were a fragile child. Yeah, I most certainly do. And so it has for you an aesthetic yes. as well as sort of a physical yes. descriptive uh, quality? And a personality trait. I'm a, I can be, not that I can't break and still go on, but I have a fragility. Although I think I don't really have a fragile personality. My personality is pretty um, strong, but my body is fragile. You know, I am a hard-driven person, but my body just is not able to keep up. That's what's fragile to me, and it's always been fragile. So I've always had this sense of gloomy-doomy, you know, even before I was sick. And we knew, my friends and I knew that when I was sick, they were going to try and associate my artwork with the disease. And it was kind of irritating because mm-hmm. before I had the disease, I was doing the same type of thing. That's the, it's not that I'm ashamed of the disease or the, it's just that I think the suffering and pain that I'm portraying in my work is more than just my pain. It's the pain that everyone goes through when they reach a certain point in their lives that it becomes overwhelming. Because everyone has to go through that crap. You don't have to have a special disease. You know, the only way you avoid it is an accident. You get run over by a car, then you probably avoid a lot of the hassle. We cannot actually see the ring of fire, but it's been felt by the Earth's surface and those who walk it. Stuart places an altar in front of the ring's edge, and from her view, this ever-moving rim holds flowers, people in recline, ships on still water, and the cosmos frozen in a photograph. The force of nature when you grow up in California, I don't know whether you, did you grow up in California? All right. So I remember one of the first things the I remember was a big earthquake. So <laughs> That's one thing I'm kind of, I have to remind myself a lot in New York to say, and, I, and you don't have to worry about earthquakes. I have to tell myself. Well, we are on a fault here. Yeah, but Canal yes. Street is on a fault. Yeah. Have you ever had an earthquake? You know, I think the building moves. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. 
It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang, and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble, with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. The Archives is so grateful to Dion Lee for her light, her focus, and her energy. This guest-curated episode received support from the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs, like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu support. Thanks for listening.